Welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Sebastian Gomes, an executive editor at America. And I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. 2020 was a year that we'd all like to forget, but that's really hard to do. In so many sad ways, it's unforgettable. And that's true also for the poet Amit Majmudar, who recently published an original poem in America magazine called Year of the Rat, about the now infamous year that was 2020. Yeah, Amit is a renowned poet. In fact, he is Ohio's first poet laureate. And he's also a published novelist, translator, essayist, and I thought most surprisingly, a diagnostic nuclear radiologist. So this poem, Year of the Rat, it's a really extraordinary reflection on 2020. It floored all of the staff here at America. And so we asked him to do a poetry reading for our Church Meets World audience. That's right. So in this episode, you're going to hear a conversation between Amit and Joe Hoover, SJ, who's America's poetry editor. He solicited the poem, and he recently sat down with Amit to go deeper into the poem itself, as well as talk about the art of writing poetry. And especially relevant was the grind of 2020. Amit with his young family, a world seeming like it's breaking down all around him, talking about what it was like to try to give voice or expression to these feelings that were within him in the poem. And we'll hear that in just a minute. But first, a quick note from our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service with literally thousands of video lectures on virtually anything that interests you. And we really mean anything. And a recent course that you and I got into that's really excellent is the history and archaeology of the Bible. Fascinating topic. There's a lot of people who are really interested in in trying to understand what really happened all those years ago among our ancestors in the faith. And this course in particular, I thought, really hit the nail on the head. Yes. And I can remember my earliest attempts to read the Bible. I thought it was such a foreign world. And then when I went to grad school, learned that it was appropriate that I think about scripture as a foreign world, that its meaning doesn't immediately jump off the page, that you have to dig into the history and the culture and the landscape and the people. And that's what this course does. You know, it brings you into the history and archaeology of the Bible so that you can really understand the meaning in its proper historical context. And that's just so, so crucial, you know, not only for learning our own history, the history of our faith tradition, but also interpreting scripture properly and faithfully, which is crucial, uh, as important today as it ever has been. The Great Courses Plus also has a wonderful app. I pull it up on my phone. I can cast it to my TV. It's very simple to use. It's all right there at your fingertips. And we have a great deal for our Church Meets World audience. If you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash CMW and you sign up, you'll get one month free of unlimited access to all of the courses, including the history and archaeology of the Bible. Yeah, you don't want to miss out. Trust us. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash CMW. And now here is Amit Majmudar reading his original poem, Year of the Rat, followed by a conversation with America's poetry editor, Joe Hoover, SJ.
Our sons had the spines of sad old men, hook-necked and hooked on laptop screens, in the simulation of a school, in a simulation of their teens. Our daughters danced to please an app, their youth a data point for sale, mere truth a dandelion clock that shred itself into the gale. Money made love to money, as ever, and money made more money still. Why wouldn't governors dine out with you and me to foot the bill? Hush, or they'll fire us for laughing, and we'll be left without our checks, dreaming enraged of reckonings, returned again to rags and wrecks. Our parents perished in beeping rooms, their funerals pixelated, freezing, freezing again, a heartbeat skipped, even their cessation ceasing. How do we kiss when breath is deadly? How do we speak when speech is a duel? How do we die but by the thousands, sloganeering our renewal? I too have been a zealot in my day. I too have been a cynic. But I saw only human beings shrouded in rows behind the clinic. What brand of breathlessness for you? Gamble on age, rely on luck, but fire up the excavator. Send the refrigerated truck. The bankers waltz the wraith of wealth, coffers and coffins to either side, while the dollar store was burning down, great pandemic, great divide. This is my country, these my people, one never-ending shout, unmasked, a love that loves the half that's like me, isn't the love this year has asked, because our task is love perforce through gritted teeth, through fear and noise, to work the words that will unwarp the world and give that love its voice. Wow. I got chills at the end of that um, and kind of emotional. Um, great read. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, this wouldn't have been written if you had not uh, asked me to submit something. Well, I mean, I did. Um, I wanted a poem for our one year anniversary, for lack of a better word, of the, uh, you know, the lockdown in the U.S. And you turned this around overnight, pretty much. Um, and you've created something beautiful. And I don't like to have, you know, try to explain a poem or you know, analyze it to death. But um, what is your process in terms of being able to to write a piece like this on, you know, command, so to speak? Um, and you know, uh, I, I how do you do that, that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that uh, a lot of it has to do with practice, being in practice, um, because I've been writing since a very, very early age. And a lot of my apprentice years uh, as a poet were spent um, trying to master meter and rhyme to the point where I can write something like this at one sitting, beginning to end, and then just send it out to you. But then there's the other element, which is that I think that 
truly, you know, meaningful and good poetry has an element of idiosyncrasy to it. Um, this, this sense that, okay, only this one human being could have written this, or it has a certain fingerprinted aspect to it. The fingerprints of of its maker are on it. And at the same time, when you are writing about, um, something that is so public and such a shared experience. And I think that Americans in the 21st century, in the year 2020, we share so little as individuals. Um, you know, as communities, we have such different backgrounds, different places in the society, different you know ways we have arrived here. Yet we all shared the lockdown. We all share the fear of the, of the pandemic. And so, in that sense, it's a very much a public, communal, national experience. And for that, you have to be able to tap into the zeitgeist. And for this poem, I wanted to simultaneously tap into the zeitgeist. But still have my fingerprints all over it as a as a poet or as a a shaper of verse, um, and then be able to take all those intentions and then set them aside and relax your will, relax the controlling aspect of your mind, relax the inner sensor. And I think part of why I was able to write it so quickly is because um, I was able to kind of take my own will out of it and just allow it to flow. And I think getting into that state of flow, it's something that psychologists have talked about. And, you know, getting into that state of flow is Mm -hmm. very important for an artist, a creative artist. I think that there's an analogy for spiritual trance states um, or times of religious, deep religious contemplation um, that, uh, that people speak of. And I think they're really speaking of the same phenomenon and that artists or, or poets, um, sculptors, musicians, they might access it and it might have an external um, artifact that you can contemplate, whereas spiritual seekers, you know, it, it may manifest as silence, but these are fundamentally the same psychological states that we're accessing. I could not have said it better. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the the ability to have a craft you've honed over the years. It's at your fingertips to some degree. The ability to be a, one who pays attention to the world and then to be able to open up the heart. You know, it's like the Picasso line in order to, I don't know, paint like a master, I had to learn to paint like a child, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that, I think, speaks to the reversion to a state of innocence. Uh, the reversion to a state of, you know, not willing uh, the masterpiece, not willing the grand work of art, and just allowing what what is there to come out. And I think that's how children paint. That's probably what Picasso was talking about. Right, right. Letting go of control of yeah. knowing where this is going, uh, determining what the piece of art will be. And it is like prayer. It's like, this is what I'm going to get out of God, and this is the insight I'm going to get. Right. Well, that's sheer math. You know, that's right, not real right. prayer. You're going to be surprised. You're going to go places you didn't know you'd go. Right. Um, and I think I think a lot of the failures that we that we undergo early on in our careers, um, whether you're just scratching away at the violin or banging away at the piano or creating, you know, lumpen nothings as a sculptor, 
or creating unpublishable poems. You know, people get discouraged by that. Um, but I went through, I think I went through just years and years of writing stuff that would just, I would, I would never even send it out. Like, but it was basically, I've never, I, I just regard m much of my stuff. I mean, I've published a lot of poems over the years, also in America, for example, but it, it is dwarfed by the number of pages and pages and pages that will never see the light of day um, from the age of 12 or 13 to the present. And I'm talking about thousands uh, of pages, hundreds and hundreds of poems, just because I'm always experimenting, always um, willing. I'm always very open to failure and I figure no one has to see it. And a lot of my best work has come precisely from this absolutely shameless willingness to fail, shameless willingness to just blurt something out and see if it, you know, see if it sticks, see if it lands. Um, and so I, and that's why, I, I mean, I write a lot. I write basically almost every day uh, in order to keep that going, in order to keep that openness and that serendipity coming. And then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I, and I have no personal, like, sense of failure or like sense of decreased self-worth as a writer when stuff gets rejected or stuff doesn't or stuff just looks so bad to me that i don't even send it anywhere right that's i mean that's you know jesuits are always like trying to fit some ignatian thing into things even mm -hmm. if it doesn't perfectly fit but this actually does because it's about indifference i put mm -hmm. it out there yeah i let god guide where it goes or doesn't go and i'm not attached to the outcome. How right? wonderful You're, that you would say that because uh, a couple of years back, I translated the Bhagavad Gita as a God song. And this is one of the central concepts uh, of the Gita. Really? Uh, yeah. Indifference, detachment. Detachment. This is, sure. this is uh, you know, asakta is the, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a cent central element of yoga. And uh, everything you said right there, it could have been, uh, you know, it could have been a quote from the Gita. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it's it's great to get a sense of the you know the backstory of where all this comes from and and the and the deep you know ancestry of um, of works that this is in a, a a long tradition of. You know what's what's interesting is that uh, um, this you know apropos of of the Rumi reference, I think in the Sufi tradition they have this. Say they have the saying: "The Sufi is the son of the moment," and I think that a lot of you know a lot of the poetry that poets themselves are fondest of are poems that are quote unquote given, and that are poems that are they did not necessarily expect to write poems that they did not you know intend or you know plan or uh, even necessarily work very hard at or for a long time at those are the poem donne those are the the given the poems that are just sort of given to you and they have a like a special place in in for for the poet because when you write something like that and it just comes out of you and it's like i don't want to change a word of it um you feel as though you you tapped into something that is not you and you tapped into something that is beyond you and that you were merely a conduit of it. And, you know, there are a few times where I felt that way about my own writing and there's the opposite of pride in it. 
there's a sense of humility that comes over you. There's a sense of, if I were better, you know, the higher power would write for me and I have to get better. I have to self-efface. I have to become more transparent. I need to dissolve my ego more effectively in order to become permeable to this in the future, in order to become a, a better conduit for what is beyond me. And so that I think is the opposite of, I guess, you know, the, the, the stereotype we might have of the vain poet, the preening poet, the vain artiste. Um, I was probably vainer of my art 20 years ago when I wrote worse <laughs> by, by every measure. I, I would, I would, when I was 17 or 18 and trying to write blank verse plays that are unperformable and unpublishable, I would think to myself, I am on the tails of, you know, I'm, I'm chasing Shakespeare here. Now I, I, I've ceased to have such thoughts and I don't, I don't feel pride necessarily in my work. And I, I definitely don't, don't feel like I barely even think about whether I've written well or poorly. I only think mm -hmm. about whether I've, whether I entered a state of flow and whether I almost paradoxically, whether I got out of the way. So I was interested in your experience of the pandemic and what kind of art it has produced. Obviously, this one came out of a direct ask to write about the year and not just the pandemic, but, you know, touching on so much. But um, what has your experience been? How has it influenced your art this past year? Yeah, you know, I've, I am a physician and uh, I, I'm a radiologist. And it just so happened that, you know, late in 2019, um, I was able to get a setup in my home. And this ended up, you know, being a, a tremendous lifesaver, as it were, um, because I was able to do a lot of my shifts from home. Uh, and because as a radiologist, you're basically looking at a, a bunch of big screens and, and, you know, preparing reports about CT scans and ultrasound and, 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 and plane films and things like that. Um, and so, you know, my experience of the pandemic was, was, different than it could have been, um, purely by chance, purely by that particular piece of technology getting online and finding its way into my home a few months before the pandemic, uh, before the lockdown started. My sister, I mean, I was more concerned about my sister, um, than I was about myself or my family members because my sister is an infectious disease physician. Mm. And so, when the surges were happening, you know, she was on a list. Uh, she's, in, she works in, um, the Chicago area, you know? And so when they were putting together their plan, you know, she was on a list of people to get called up and then, you know, there's, uh, personal protective equipment shortages at that time, uh, you know, back in the spring. So I was, I was very worried about my family members, um, who are in healthcare and, but are less insulated than I am as a radiologist. Um, but as far as, you know, the work that came out of the pandemic, I, I did not write directly about the pandemic very much. I did a little bit in, in, uh, in April. Um, and, and 
a lot of what I wrote was stuff that I felt that I, I mean, kind of been sort of mentally imagining that I might write it far in the future. And okay, maybe when I retire, I have a lot of time on my hands and I'll write, I'll rewrite, you know, the Mahabharata. It'll be a, it'll be a big old book, right? And the sense of my, you know, mortality, I think this, this probably hit a lot of people, which is that you're only, you know, uh, one exposure away to potentially ending up in the ICU, potentially ending up intubated, potentially ending up dead. Um, that focuses the mind, you know, they, there was a, uh, you know, I think, I don't forgot who said it, but somebody said, you know, you know, having to be hanged the next morning, you know, f concentrates the mind ex extraordinarily. And, and I think the pandemic concentrated my mind and really made me think about first and last things, you know, what do I want to get, get done with my life? What, what do I want to, to, to accomplish, uh, you know, as a writer, um, as a person, and so I definitely became more literarily productive. I became more religious. I became more focused on my family. Uh, all of those things, and I, I, I like to think that I'm a, a a better person on the other side of this. I mean, not that we're not that we're on the other side of this, but I, I have gotten my priorities straightened out um, in in in, a, in the sense of you know focusing on my art, focusing on my faith, focusing on my family. Um, and, and in the end, those are the things that count. Those are the things that matter. And those are things that make me happy, to be honest with you. Those are the things that make me happy. And I think that um, lockdown, the sense of the fragility of life, both of myself and of my loved ones, and the that that feeling of having to go to, to some higher power for refuge, for sanctuary, for comfort and for support. All of those things really uh, were foregrounded. And the trivialities of life, uh, even the fact that even though it was an election year and even though there were all these upheavals taking place, I mean, I, I witnessed them and I felt for them and with them, but I processed those things differently than I would have if this had not been a pandemic year. And if these insights and this grounding had not taken place. Okay. So no, that's fascinating. So because the pandemic brought out this sense of first and last things, a connection, a deeper connection to a God, a higher power, the force of the universe that brings us meaning, um, that in a way put all this other stuff in perspective for you, all the other upheavals I, of our society I, right I, now. I, I think, I think it did. I think it did. It which is not to say that I did not, you know, um, experience, you know, the same emotions that I think we all did, I, I, it, or that we, you know, or that I felt indifferent towards it, or that I felt detached from it. I just feel like I just feel like it. It, it put a lot of things in perspective. So, year of the rat. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. I am assuming this has been the year of the rat, twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. Yeah, I think yeah. according to the Chinese uh, calendar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the poem contains, um, I mean, you have kids, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the poem is talking about kids in school and, and, you know, data points for sale. And, um, I mean, there's anger in the poem, there's sadness, there's wonderment, there's mourning, there's, you know, there's a prophetic vision towards something better. Uh, 
So you're bringing a lot into this work of the year, it sounds like, and a lot of yourself, obviously, into this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, my kids have been doing school here at home, you know, distance learning, and they're in front of a screen, you know, all all morning and into the early afternoon. Um, and And the initial image of the pandemic year for me has been, you know, going downstairs and seeing them hunched over a screen, no matter how much I tell them to make it more ergonomically, uh, you know, better for them. They, they, there's always just this, there's this way that they sit. And I thought to myself, um, how it was kind of like the posture of, of, of an old man or of, of old men, because I have twins and that, and it, and it made me feel about how the, you know, in what ways the pandemic year has aged my children and sort of, I guess, you know, impinged upon their, their innocence in a way that my innocence at that age was never impinged upon. And I still remember the first time, you know, we got out antiseptic or antibiotic, you know, wipes to wipe down the groceries and my kids came over and they helped out with that. And I thought to myself, you know, what if, you know, a few years ago, somebody, you know, told me that, look, in a few years, these little kids of yours are going to be wiping plague germs off of food, um, off of food containers. I'd be like, oh my God, what kind of apocalypse have, have mm. we entered? And that was not, you know, that image was not necessarily one that, found its way into the poem, but that image is related to the first line, you know, our sons are the spines of sad old men. Um, because that was kind of the triggering, the, that was the triggering, uh, image and triggering feeling and the, and the dominant concern I had over this past year, which is that, you know, my kids have been exposed to something existential at a very early age that I never was at, at that age. And I think most of, I think our generation was not. And, um, and it, it, the only comparable thing is, you know, children exposed to war, you know, cause these are the four horsemen, you know, like, and, and children are exposed to war. I mean, it's, it's different. It, it changes them. And in this case, children, our children have been exposed to the idea of a plague and it's different than having, you know, the Luftwaffe over over the roofs of your of your of your town, but it's it is still an existential uh, question. You know, all these existential questions uh, arise for very young children. You know, my daughter was six when this happened, and she too was overhearing the conversations. She was hearing the conversations. She was hearing the concerns. Um, I, you know, for, and she was, she overheard the conversation where me and my sister were talking about the shortage of personal protective equipment, um, for when she was going to see patients potentially with COVID. Um, and all of those things, you know, those are impinging on her innocence and that, and they're inevitably, you know, shaping them and shaping their personalities. It's a sad thing to think about. Right. Right. And how, how old are your, are your twin boys? Oh, they just turned 13, um, but they were, they were 12. Yeah, they were 12 um, during the pandemic, during 2020. Six-year-old daughter and then 12-year-old twin sons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I don't, you don't have to get too personal here, but as a father, I can just imagine there's a sense of helplessness. Like, I can't 
you know, force these kids into school. This is what the way the world is. I can't shield my kids from the tragedy around us and pretend nothing's happening. I can't protect them from everything I'd like to protect them from, at least um, that is just happening. And there's, it's just happening. Right. And it's all around us. Um, so that must be really uh, sad and challenging as a, as a parent. Yeah. You know, I think, I think a lot of parents have, have experienced that, especially when I think back to my own childhood, you know, in the 1980s and, and kind of how sheltered that was. And we were, you know, between, you know, there was World War II and Vietnam and, and all of those things that were in the past. And then 9-11 and uh, the pandemic, all of that was in the future. And I was kind of in this little sweet spot where, I mean, yes, there was the Cold War and yes, we had to do those, those nuclear uh, alert drills. I still remember doing those. But that also was just kind of unreal. It wasn't, it wasn't really the same nature as this. Um, definitely not the same nature as the, as, as the pandemic. And there is helplessness. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, the uncertainty was, was worse earlier on, uh, I think in the, in those initial months. Mm -hmm. And, and there was, there were, there were open questions at that time as to whether supply chains would hold, whether, um, you know, what degree of, breakdown of civil order might result from this what degree of economic collapse might result from this and i and i i do remember worrying a lot more um earlier on and i think that um as time has gone on i've gotten a new sense of sort of the resilience and 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 stubbornness of of systems and people um which has been a little, which has been reassuring, I think. Mm -hmm. And also we know more about the virus itself. Um, right. Cause I think at that time early on, you know, when you, when you think back to it, we, we didn't know a lot about it and there was a lot of obfuscation going on. Was it airborne? Was it not? Could you get it off of objects or not? Um, how contagious was it? How likely were you to die from it? How likely were you to be disabled from it permanently or, or temporarily? And, and, and I think, learning more about it, uh, and just, you know, from a scientific perspective and, and then, you know, seeing the way society has adapted, um, that's been reassuring over time. And I'm not necessarily as worried about, you know, all of this as I was a year ago, mm -hmm. that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you had mentioned that one of the things that keeps you rooted in this time is your own sense of a connection to God, mm -hmm. higher power, how would you describe your own spiritual or religious practice, whatever of that you want to share? Oh yeah, sure. You know, as I as I mentioned, I, I did translate the the Gita um, and publish that back in 2018. Um, I am a, a Hindu, uh, and I'm very very rooted in that tradition. Um, and but it's a very you know an open minded and and an eclectic Hinduism. You yourself have published some of my poems that partake of the biblical tradition, and mm -hmm. um, you know I actually I've some of my most um, the editors that I'm closest to uh, are actually editors of uh, Christian or faith based uh, Christian journals and magazines that I have the longest history with. But my own personal religious practice is definitely grounded in the Hinduism of the Gita, which I've studied 
you know, extensively. I continue my study of Sanskrit um, with my whole family now. Um, my kids are learning Sanskrit as well. And uh, the idea, the ideas that are um, commonly characterized as Vedantic, um, this sense of the self and the other primarily, you know, essentially being one, the self and the divine or Brahman being one, the idea of of life itself being one life among many that are all in a common purpose, a, a common a common struggle, a common uh, pursuit of the divine, of a reunification or at one mint atonement, at one mint with with the divine. And so, in the sense, in a sense, religiously, I'm a citizen of the world, but I do have a home, and that home is the Gita. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know. You know a lot of stuff. <laughs> How about we just put it like that? Um, I'm getting an education here myself. Um, and and the God that we speak of, Hindu, the you know, the Hindu practice, the, the Christian practice, we have a certain as a as a Christian and a Catholic, a certain understanding of how God operates, even though ultimately we don't know how God operates. Ultimately, there's always a mystery. There mm-hmm. always is. But the year of the rat, the year of pandemic, the year of social racial upheaval, the year of a um, insurrection against the capital, the year of economic collapse—all of that. Do you have a sense of how the divine is, or could be, working in, or through, or against, or is is blocked? himself by all of this what what is happening <laughs> you, you say i know a lot of stuff and then you ask me something i don't know to knock me back down no <laughs> you know i i will say this uh politics is deep all right politics is deep uh deceptions is deep um propaganda is deep and in, in we are in the fog of war right now and I think that, you know, when they talk about the fog of war, you know, what did Napoleonic, you know, era generals, what, what were they talking about? Well, you know, all those muskets would fire and all the smoke would enter the air and you literally couldn't see the guy next to you for a while. You couldn't see the guys you'd fired at. You didn't know whether that guy would be charging through the fog literally the fog, you know, the, the smoky fog, gray Mm -hmm. miasma, whether he'd come at you with the bayonet or whether he was lying dead, um, or whether he was injured, you had no idea you were in the fog of war. And then even at the macro level, generals had no idea because they didn't have communication satellites. They didn't have, um, you know, they didn't have comms the way contemporary militaries do. And so when, you know, Wellington and Napoleon are, are having at each other, Wellington doesn't know where his reinforcements are. He doesn't know how far away they are. He doesn't know if they're going to get there at all. He doesn't know if they've been ambushed and destroyed. And he's in the fog of war and he continues to fight. Okay, that's that's the fog of war. It is not just the physical fog of war. It is also the absolute unknowability of who's where and what's going on. And I think that with politics people have a hard time resigning themselves to the fog of war. They have a hard time resigning themselves to the idea that not that you are in the midst of the events 
And it is precisely for this reason that you will not understand what is going on. It's precisely because the muskets just fired at the guys 20 feet away from you. It is precisely because of that that you will have no idea how many of them are standing and how many of them have fallen. And right now, we're in the fog of war. We're in the fog of pandemic. We're in the fog of upheaval. We're in the fog of economic inequality and, and, and collapse and downturn. And so in this sense, um, when I say I don't know, I, it's kind of like I know that I do not know. You know, I, I am a, I'm an agnostic about, about these things. A lot of people have a ton of certainty about uh, who's right, who's wrong, who's good, who's bad, who's evil. And maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. But I do know that intense certainty has permitted people to do some terrible things throughout history. And a little bit of humility and a little bit of agnosticism is, is called for at any moment, but even more so in times of upheaval. And so, and, so mm-hmm. when you say, how is God working through this? I mean, it, it almost tempts one into saying, you know, into, into dividing the world into a Manichaean good versus evil, them versus us sort of scenario and say, look, well, one side would say, you know, God has turned his back on us or God has helped, mm-hmm. you know, you know, did the devil has triumphed or this or that. Others might say, you know, oh, God made the election turn out a certain way. Um, this is this is not how I approach it. This is not how I how I think of it. I think of things in terms of the fog of war. And and I and so I it's almost as though I defer judgment. I defer judgment. And to be honest, uh, you know, I remember 9-11 and at the time, I thought things would turn out one way. A little bit more time went by, I thought things would turn out another way. It is only now that I feel like I can look back on it and get some perspective on it. And it's been a couple of decades, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the time when I was coming to those early snap judgments, uh, those were snap judgments. Even judgments in 2003 were snap judgments. Like, the fog of war is deep and thick and long-lasting and it lingers. And I'm I'm at peace with that. I don't feel like I need to suss out the will of God in in events that I'm living through. Mm-hmm, I simply mm-hmm. need to uh, judge them, come to my sense of what is righteous, what is dharmic, and what is not. You know, what is dharmic and what is what is dharma and what is adharma. What is righteousness and what is unrighteousness. That is the judgment that I need to make, and I need to stand by my decision, and uh, and do what I think is right. Um, in whatever little way I can, whether as a voter or as an American or as a writer. And, and no, no, thank you for that answer. I mean, I, I agree in the sense of not knowing and acknowledging I don't know what God is doing is right. in some ways the best response because it reminds myself, oh, right, I'm not God. I don't have the mountaintop <laughs> right, view. Right, right. And I do think this is why for me anyway, poetry is the best response, especially to this kind of um, thing that is happening. I mean, people can analyze, you know, data and politics and economics. They can, um, you know, do, um, you know, analytical essays on culture and how it's shifting and and what does this mean for kids in our future and whether we work at home or not. And and what does it mean to be an essential worker? Or you can write a poem that tries to engage without didactically didactically um, explaining, without yeah. saying, I have 
the truth perfectly, but just by declaring what is, you're kind of naming the truth. Um, you, you're, so I, you're, and, and you're naming, you're, you're, you're sort of pointing out landmarks in the fog. Right, right. And especially in pandemic, I mean, 9-11, I mean, poetry can be used at any time, but it was so, the thing happened, we saw it. It created that other thing, that other thing. This is more amorphous. This is more, yeah. we don't see what's happening. It's out there. We're trying to capture it. Uh, I've tried to write poetry about it in essays. And something about this time does call for the artists, for the poets. Um, it, com- it comes down to ambiguity, right? It comes down to the fact that the effects that this is having on you know, larger systems and relationships are so opaque and so uncertain um, that the ambiguity, the uncertainty, and that the that negative capability, you know, to to reside in ambiguities and contradictions, mm-hmm. that is what is called for because that is truest to reality. You know, right, right. I love the word reality, and I like living in reality. And on that note, um, what I'd like you to do is read the poem one more time for us. Sure. And um, let's just get a look at this at this lovely um, uh, work. Year of the Rat. Our sons had the spines of sad old men, hook-necked and hooked on laptop screens, in the simulation of a school, in a simulation of their teens. Our daughters danced to please an app, their youth a data point for sale. Mere truth, a dandelion clock that shred itself into the gale. Money made love to money, as ever, and money made more money still. Why wouldn't governors dine out with you and me to foot the bill? Hush, or they'll fire us for laughing, and we'll be left without our checks. Dreaming, enraged of reckonings, returned again to rags and wrecks. Our parents perished in beeping rooms, their funerals pixelated, freezing, Freezing again, a heartbeat skipped, even their cessation ceasing. How do we kiss when breath is deadly? How do we speak when speech is a duel? How do we die but by the thousands, sloganeering our renewal? I too have been a zealot in my day. I too have been a cynic. But I saw only human beings shrouded in rows behind the clinic. What brand of breathlessness for you? Gamble on age, rely on luck, but fire up the excavator. Send the refrigerated truck. The bankers waltzed the wraith of wealth, coffers and coffins to either side while the dollar store was burning down. Great pandemic, great divide. This is my country, these my people. One never-ending shout, unmasked. A love that loves the half that's like me. Isn't the love this year has asked. Because our task is love perforce, through gritted teeth, through fear and noise, to work the words that will unwarp the world and give that love its voice. 
That was Amit Majmadar and Joe Hoover SJ in conversation about Amit's poem, Year of the Rat. You can read Year of the Rat at americamagazine.org and we'll link to it in the show notes. Amit Majmadar's latest poetry collection is What He Did in Solitary. His forthcoming novels include The Map and the Scissors, as well as the Mahabharata trilogy. And that does it for this episode of Church Meets World. We hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation. To hear future episodes, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'll be back with all new episodes in the weeks ahead. Remember that the best way for you to support this podcast and our media ministry at America is by subscribing. For full access to all of our digital content, go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Church Meets World is a production of American Media. This episode was written and produced by us, Maggie Van Dorn, Sebastian Gomes, and Joe Hoover, SJ. Sound designed by Noah Levinson. Thanks for listening.